2: WABE in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzis. Thank you for listening. Douglas Hooker has said, I have the soul of a musician, the heart of a composer and the brain of an engineer. Mr. Hooker has been the executive director of the Atlanta Regional Commission for over 10 years, and he'll retire in March with hopes of devoting more time to his music. He recently composed a large-scale work that will have its world premiere on Sunday. It'll be performed with orchestra and the Trey Clegg Singers, and it's happening at the First Center for the Arts at Georgia Tech. The symphony, titled Without Regard to Sex, Race, or Color, was inspired by two recent works of photographer Andrew Feiler. The photographer recently joined Lois via Zoom, along with the composer Douglas Hooker and organist-conductor Trey Clegg. Andrew Filer began by explaining the origins of their collaboration.
3: Doug and I have served on boards together. We have shared other civic endeavors. We have been friends for more than two decades. And about 20 years ago, we found ourselves sitting next to each other at a civic event, talking about our civic work together. And that conversation bled into a conversation about our art, my work as a photographer, Doug's work as a composer. So jump forward to about 2015, when my first book of photography came out, I'd been a serious photographer most of my life, but about a decade ago, I started down this path of taking my work more seriously and mercifully being taken more seriously. And my first book of photography came out. I was invited down to Serenby to speak on a Sunday morning to a group of folks who are an interfaith group that gather each, each week to speak about the role of values in my art. And somebody came up to me afterwards and said, your photographs have this lyrical quality to them. Have you thought about working with a composer to set them to music? And I thought, well, I actually had never thought about that, but I thought it was a really intriguing idea. And since Doug and I had already developed this friendship around our shared passions for not only our civic work, but our art, I approached Doug and so I'll let Doug r- run with the story from there.
0: And so we we're having dinner together as we like to uh, do occasionally and just catching up about community life and family life and then he says a little bit nervously and jokingly I've got this idea but if you're not interested you can just tell me no and I said okay well what's the idea? He said what about us doing an artistic collaboration? I said well what would that look like? He said well you compose something in response to my book because you're familiar with the journey you're familiar with the themes and everything else and so i said to him lois i said so are you wanting some kind of pictures at an exhibition kind of approach you know
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and he said no no i want whatever comes out of your heart your mind however you interpret my work and interpret uh, the themes in it so uh with that we i took a couple of weeks to think about it and i said you know i've got an idea for a three-part, three-movement symphony. I know what the first movement is for sure. I'm not quite so sure about the second movement, and I don't know where the third movement will pop up at some point in time. And so there we went away, and I got the first movement done in a more limited fashion than the current uh, version of it. And we were fortunate to have that premiered in March of 2019, when Andrew's exhibition was up at the National Center for Civil Rights at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis. And so that's how it came about.
4: Wow. Andrew, would you talk about the themes in your books? You mentioned values. Would you talk about those themes that are conveyed through Doug's symphony?
3: One of the things that I had to do at the outset of going down this path of taking my work more seriously was to figure out what is my voice as an artist? And I kept being drawn back to topics that were of interest in my civic work. And what I came to understand is that my photography rests at the intersection of activism and art and history. And my first project was a portrait of an abandoned college campus, a largely abandoned college campus, that happens to be the campus here in Atlanta of Morris Brown College. This was while Morris Brown College was in bankruptcy. I am thrilled that they have emerged from bankruptcy and recently are on the path to reaccreditation. Many of the buildings were lost during the bankruptcy process. Some of these buildings have been torn down and this portrait of these abandoned college spaces have this dissonance in them because on one hand these spaces are incredibly familiar We have been in these classrooms, we have walked these hallways, but we're used to seeing them populated by people and not by ghosts. And the essence of that work was to use that dissonance, that creative dissonance to raise awareness about the simple fact that education has been the backbone of the American dream, the access point to the American middle class since before there was the United States of America. And so I explore that connection between history, America and education. And then in 2015, I had turned that book in. I was thinking about what I was going to do next, and I found myself at lunch with a woman named Jeannie Syriac, who was a pres- African-American preservationist at the Georgia State Historic Preservation Office, and she's the first person that tells me about Rosenwald schools. And the Rosenwald schools program is a deeper dive into the same theme of education and its importance in American history. The Rosenwald schools program was a, collaboration between a white northern Jewish businessman, Julius Rosenwald, the president of Sears Roebuck and Company, and noted educator Booker T. Washington, Southern Christian African American, and from 1912 to 1937, their program called Rosenwald Schools built 4,978 schools across 15 southern and border states, and the results were transformative. And so, that first book was called Without Regard to Sex, Race, or Color. It takes its title from the school bell that hangs above the campus of Morris Brown College. The inscription reads, dedicated to the education of youth, without regard to sex, race, or color. And my second book is A Better Life for Their Children, Julius Rosenwald, Booker T. Washington, and the 4,978 Schools That Changed America. Doug's work corresponds to those two books.
4: Yes. Doug. Andrew mentioned that someone remarked on the lyrical quality of his photography, and indeed so many of his photos can be haunting or uplifting or powerful on all levels. Would you tell us how you translate Andrew's photography to music? Well I
0: asked Andrew about that early on and I decided that I was not trying to translate the photos per se but rather the experience and the history and the trajectory of the, of the current existential problems that historically black colleges and universities face now or certainly at the time that that I started the work and so it wasn't really about so much the photograph as much as the story behind the photographs and what they meant And so I tried to do this in the context of borrowing from familiar themes from post-Reconstruction America, when most of the historically Black colleges and universities were founded, using themes that are even familiar today, like the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Most people associate that with the Civil War. It was written during that period of time, but it wasn't necessarily written for the Civil War. But most people are familiar with that. And so I started with something familiar, and I started with some familiar spirituals and With those, I added some of my own original material. And through the combination of weaving those into major and then minor modes and using narrators who are also four vocal soloists, they use quotes and they tell a story about the start of HBCUs, their purpose, their mission to lift former slaves to much better lives. And for me, that was where I derived the title of Part one of the uh, symphony, a very heavy lift, because that was a very heavy lift indeed. Here are people who are over 90%, closer to 95%, recently enslaved, and they have no material goods of their own, wherewithal they, for many of them, they didn't even know where to go. Leaving the plantation was all they knew. They didn't know where to go, where to settle, what to do. All they had was their hands and their determination to try to be better. And the historically black colleges and universities made use of that energy and that determination to try to give them an education and tools to help make them better Americans, better people. And so that was a heavy lift in my mind And so that was the, the nature of the first movement and then the second movement referring to Andrew's second book better life for their children I was really focused again on the story of the partnership between the two men which at the time in the United States you know if we said right now an African-American uh, educator and a prominent Jewish businessman were collaborating on something it would be interesting but it wouldn't necessarily be surprising but back in those days That was just remarkably unheard of. And the fact that these two both had a mutual desire to push for better education for African Americans. It was that partnership in their spirit and their dynamic personalities that I tried to reflect in compositional themes about themselves from familiar things like spirituals, My Lord, What a Morning, and uh, Swing Low Sweet Chariot. And then also using a little bit of patriotism, uh, My Country Tis of Thee, and blending these together again with some original compositional themes to try to tell a musical portrait of these two dynamic men who did something that was, in my mind, probably one of the most patriotic things that's ever been done for this country and changed the course of our history for the better because of it.
4: The text you use draws from a variety of sources. You have Harriet Tubman, Langston Hughes, Angela Davis, and Michelle Obama. Was it difficult to narrow down which quotes? I would think it must have been daunting to limit it.
0: Indeed, it very much was. so. And Lois, you you, you are quite uh, good at understanding the heart of some of the, these challenges, I went through a mind-boggling array of quotes and sorting them out and trying to determine what was the best place to let that person's voice speak in the musical narrative. So yes, it was, but you know, thank God for Google <laughs> because it helped with my research a lot. But a lot of those quotes, uh, not all of them, but many of those quotes actually come from when these famous African-Americans were giving speeches at commencement addresses to historically Black colleges and universities. And so there was a kind of a reinforcement for me that they were talking to the audience that I'm trying to reflect uh, their struggles, their challenge, and their aspirations and their victories musically and with the narrative as well. So uh, thank you for that. That was indeed a bit of a challenge, but but I think the audience will find it very helpful in, in being able to understand the the trajectory of the history of HBCUs, their critical importance, not only to Black Americans, but to the whole nation, and to the uncertainty of their future uh, is something that we need to address to be sure they continue to be viable and viable contributors to us as a country.
4: Indeed. Trey, you are on the music faculty of Spelman College, as well as being an organist and conductor. You chose this piece to highlight the Trey Clegg Singers concert for Black History Month. So this piece really has pride of place. Would you guide us through some of the text and how Doug scored the music, portions that you find particularly moving? We can't play the whole piece for our audience, but if you would guide us through some of it, it would be wonderful.
1: By all means. Thanks, Louis. I am having a blast getting into the heart of this music. Doug Hooker has been a dear friend of mine for about half of my adult life. He's in my church choir at the Historically Black First Congregational downtown where I'm the organist. And then he joined the Trey Clegg Singers in the bass section. He has a beautiful bass voice on top of being an incredible composer, a true Renaissance man. As Doug mentioned in the beginning of the work, which by the way, has a massive orchestration. It's full strings, full winds, full brass, piano, celesta, full percussion, it's the works. And you really do get a sense in the beginning of the end of the Civil War in Doug's referencing the quotation of the battle hymn of the republic but then all of a sudden we venture from the major mode to the minor mode and you get the sense of what's going to happen now that the slaves yes are free but they're still being treated as though they were enslaved as we know historically well then as we venture throughout the piece still in the first movement we hear some jazz elements There's a jazz saxophone solo that emerges in this. And as we know, we're entering into the 20th century historically. It's a very programmatic work, by the way. We start to hear elements of Copland because Copland was very influential in Doug's writing style.
4: I noticed in the score you sent me to look over before this conversation that Doug indicates for the saxophone, for one of those jazzy portions or jazz imbued portions, sax improvise. You've got charts in addition to a full classical symphonic score here.
0: Oh, I, I'm sorry. I can't help myself. I'm, I'm very influenced, as, as Trey said, by Copen, but also by American jazz, which is, you know, an original form of music that emanated from African Americans and their spiritual traditions and blues traditions. So I couldn't help myself. It just comes out of me kind of naturally there.
4: Oh, no, I applaud that. I just love seeing improvise within the context of a fully spelled out score because jazz charts always leave room for improvisation. In the past couple hundred years of European-dominated music, mm mm-mm. The composer got to dictate everything and the jazz as truly american music of course would emerge in the historic context of this piece but trey please go ahead
1: well speaking of that jazz sax solo that's going to be played by the very versatile Ted Gurch, my dear friend, who's the principal clarinetist in the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. I hired Ted to play principal clarinet for our orchestra here, and he's doubling on clarinet and saxophone. And Oh, it's, it's gonna be a riveting moment, my God. And then at the end of the first movement, Doug has a quotation of the African-American national anthem, lift every voice and sing that will be sung by the principal soloists and the chorus. And that's the first time we hear actual singing in the, in the work, into the first movement. Also in the first movement, we hear, as Doug mentioned, quotations from the spiritual Go Down Moses and also the Morris Brown College Anthem. And as Andrew mentioned, Morris Brown College is a major theme in this work and in the photography. And Doug just captured it magnificently in the first movement. So that's our hello and kudos to all the Morris Brown alumni who will be in the audience. The second movement actually starts out very hymn-like and majestic. And then we hear some, some Jewish themes in there as well, which Doug captured magnificently Our connection with the Jewish community here is riveting. He also has a quotation of my country Tisnope, in the second movement as well. And then here we we start to really feel some almost some Copeland Rodeo. I want to get up and dance. It's so exciting, my God. And we hear the introduction of the piano. The second movement as well, which will be played by my dear friend and colleague, Renee Clark, who's a musical. Yes.
4: She's wonderful.
1: Renee is also my associate of the church music staff at First Congregational, where Doug and I are together. This is like like an all-star cast here, you know, on some fantastic virtuoso composition as well. And then we really hear the chorus featured in the third movement. And Lois, these texts in the third movement in which the chorus and soloists really shine are unbelievably moving. And so the other day I was having a coaching with a soprano soloist I've hired, my dear friend and colleague, Maria Clark at Spelman College. She literally was reduced to tears in singing these texts. Oh my, listen to this. There must be a time where I can know myself without someone's fear defining me as the other. There must be a place when I can be myself without someone's hate attacking me as the other. Until I reach that time, until I see that place, knowledge is the ship that will carry me through this precarious existence until I feel that place, until I know that time. Education is the compass that guides my way to define myself. Isn't that powerful? Oh, so
4: much. I mean, this is essentially a love letter to education.
1: Absolutely, yes. And the fact that I'm privileged an honor to teach on a historically black college music faculty, I can't even put into words the joy that that brings my spirit. Lois, I
0: love the way you said that it, it is for me a, a bit of a love letter to education, which I think goes back to the author of all of this with Andrew's two works, which uh, I think are love letters to education, but beyond that, they're also a cause to action for us to not take our educational institutions for granted in all of their various forms, but to continue to look to keep them vibrant and viable for the future. So that's just that you're right. That was my take on, on what I was trying to do. So thank you for that acknowledgement. I greatly appreciate it.
4: Oh, indeed. I'm thinking back on something I read earlier, Doug, that said you were not, formally trained in music, but you play seven instruments?
0: Uh, Well, it was only six. And I don't play all six anymore. But no, I've never been formally trained in music. Uh, Well, I I currently study oboe. Since I've been an older adult, I I formally studied oboe with Barbara Cook. But uh, no, I had no uh, formal training for uh, music in my high school or, or college years. It's just always been in me. My mother will tell you that And she tells a story proudly to a lot of people that when she was expecting me, I was her first child, she would sit down and play the piano and sing every day, thinking that I would hear the music. And I guess she worked her magic because in third grade, I came home from school one day and said to her, Mom, I want to play the violin. And she was a single mother with four children as a teacher, but she made sure she worked out a way in that budget that I could have A violin and she played for a violin rental and that was the start of my music journey but it's always been in me yes ma'am
4: my goodness so how did you write down your musical conception into score form i
0: have a, a manuscript book in which i start sketching ideas of what am i trying to say musically what am i trying to emphasize and which instrumental voices are the important ones for making the initial statement or the primary statement for that musical concept or that concept that I'm trying to translate into music. So I start by doing that, deciding what kind of familiar tunes I was going to use in the case of part one, because I thought that would give the audience an approachability. They wouldn't have to try to work through all original composition, but they could start with a place of something or some themes that are familiar to them And therefore not focus as much on the movie as the overall environment with the narration and music undergirding the narration or the narration overtopping the music however you want to look at it so i try i tried to think about it in that way and work out things and then i look for moments for am i trying to get harmony am i trying to get dissonance at this point in time and there are some places where there's some distinct dissonance just because it represents the historical moment or the uh, challenge that was about it. But then I also try to represent things that are uplifting. There's a part of the first movement. When I originally wrote it, and I knew it was gonna only be a strings composition for that original premiere, for that first movement, I wanted to, how could I reflect into strings section, the spirit of the black college band? Because anybody that knows anything about black colleges knows that the band is the soul of the culture of the campus. So you hear a lot of pizzicato and a lot of syncopation uh, with the strings. But now I've been able to translate that to a full orchestral um, arrangement, including a lot of horns and percussion. So those are the kinds of things I try to think about as I write out things and pull them together and and play with them. and, And eventually things start coming together. Wow.
4: Are there going to be any projections or, Andrew, will any of your photos be on view?
3: Doug and I are still working out the details of how we do that.
4: Okay. Certainly would translate beautifully. Andrew, it's understandable that your artwork would inspire activism. As you said, they intersect for you along with history. How does it feel now that your artwork inspired art in another medium?
3: I think that art is so often a solo creative endeavor. When I was shooting the Rosenwald School's project, I drove 25,000 miles over 15 states over three and a half years, largely by myself. In doing his composition work, Doug would sit in his workspace, largely by himself. And then to have the opportunity to take that solo experience, and have it become a shared experience. Certainly as I was in the process of doing both of my, these projects, I was verbally sharing it with close friends, verbally sharing the experience with Doug. But then to, to have Doug go off and do his creative work in a way that continues to inform my work and his work in responding to my work, it's an incredible joy as an artist to have the rare opportunity to intersect with another artist and to feed off of each other. It's been a really emotional and moving experience. It's brought Doug and me closer together. And it's it's one of the highlights of my creative endeavors.
2: Photographer Andrew Feiler, composer Douglas Hooker, and organist-conductor Trey Clegg. The world premiere of Without Regard to Sex, Race, or Color is this Sunday, February 6th, at the First Center for the Arts at Georgia Tech. In a moment, the next installment in our series, Speaking of the Arts, today featuring surrealist painter, Ilona Kutz, Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE, I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzes, and it's great to have you along. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we get to hear from local artists in their own words.
7: My name is Ilona Kutz. I'm a fine artist and I specialize in painting. I also do some three-dimensional pieces, but most of my work is oil painting. I think you could define my style as something between magical surrealism and pop surrealism. I'm what you would call a visual storyteller and my aim is to create art for the purpose of creating consciousness. Both my parents are very artistically inclined. My mother used to collect antiques and art. My father, on the other hand, loved visiting museums and used to take me to see art from a very early age. I spent most of my childhood growing up in Mexico and I was really influenced by the art in Mexico, specifically the Mexican muralist movement. At the age of 16 I set up my first art studio in the basement of my parents home in Mexico city and I decided that I wanted to be a painter when I grow up, although back then I didn't really know what that meant in reality. There is so much inspiration to be found around us. There's not just one specific thing that inspires me. I can be inspired and awed by the tiniest of things, such as looking at a flower close up and imagining how those colors would look on canvas. I'm very inspired by nature, animals, and also the spirit realm, something that you can't see or that's not tangible, but we can sense it in our subconscious. I choose to call Atlanta my home because I feel that Atlanta found me and not the other way around. I don't believe in coincidences. I believe that we have a path in life and that path has taken me to Atlanta. I feel very much at home in Atlanta because I am surrounded by so much greenery. I had an idea of Atlanta that it was very much a city built on concrete with no greenery. But I was pleasantly surprised to find out that there's so many parks, so much wildlife and animals and trees and plants for me to enjoy here. I'm originally from Finland, so nature is important to me. And when I'm surrounded by nature, I feel like I'm at home. At present moment, I have an exhibition at Sproyal Art Gallery in Dunwoody. This exhibition is called The Homecoming, and it's a tribute to my journey as a nomad and finally finding home. I also have my website, IlonaCuts.com, where you can see my work at all times.
2: Artist Ilona Cutts and our series, Speaking of the Arts. Cutts will be giving an artist talk tomorrow at Sproul Gallery in Dunwoody. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up. A cross-generational multidimensional time-traveling love story from Atlanta author Shayna Miles. Amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. In literary fiction, parallel timelines, cross-generational stories, and shifting narrator perspectives are tools of truly ambitious writers. Atlanta author Shayna Miles' debut young adult novel, For All Time, incorporates all of this into one time-traveling love story where the two main characters find each other over and over again. This past fall, Miles spoke with City Lights producer Summer Evans over Zoom, and the author began by talking about the importance of talking about joy and young black love in novels.
6: Joy can be its own kind of, you know, revolution. It can be just as powerful as a uh, protest. It can be its own kind of protest as well because, you know, we continue to survive, we continue to thrive as Black people in America because of that joy and that laughter. And I think if we don't acknowledge the joy, the humanity of black people, then we'll continue to be at the mercy of those who would like to marginalize and erase us or not recognize us as human because it's just kind of, we become like an object of pity on the low end and on the high end, we become objects for eradication.
5: This story takes place in several different time eras—past, present, and future. Each chapter is either told from Tamar or Fayard's point of view, whether that's in the 14th century, 1920s, present day, or 23rd century. How did you come up with this idea of a love story that's reincarnated through different eras?
6: I was writing a um, historical fiction novel, and I finished it. And I wanted, to, and it was set in 1850s which was right before the Civil War, right around the Fugitive Slave Act. And I wanted to explore other eras because there's a lot of focus on that particular era of American history and Black people's placement in that time, in that era. And I wanted to kind of focus on other things. So I played around with um, some characters and I just wrote some short stories, some short treatments in different kinds of eras that I thought would be interesting that don't get a lot of Focus. So I had a space or a, a treatment that was in San Francisco in the 1960s during like the flower children and the Black Panthers because they were all around at the same time. I had, you know, a treatment that was in New Orleans um, around the early eight, 19th century um, and wanted to kind of play with, you know, the free Black people, the gens de couleur that were there at that time. I wanted to go into different places. And then as I was doing that, I kept using the same two characters. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I kind of melded all of these, if there was a way to kind of hop back and forth, or you know, with these same people. And it just kind of organically started to kind of weave itself together.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: And the timelines don't just take place in America like you were saying, we're transported to Mali, like in West Africa in the 1300s and even space. How did you come up with those locations on top of the ones that are in America from the 1920s and present day?
6: Um, because I wanted to focus on like the diaspora of you know black people we're not just black people in America, you know, as uh, descendants of Africans uh, who were brought here, you know against our will. we didn't always exist here in in this in this space and there's a lot to be even explored in that you know there's you know we talk about you know black people in america but you know, America's not that old, you know, You know, so like, if you wanted to, to, you could do a lot and some really cool stuff where you focused on, you know, the Black people who escaped to Mexico, or, you know, or the Black people who, you know, lived in Spanish Florida before it was, you know, purchased, and, you know, I'm putting that in quotes, purchased, or, you know, given up by the Spanish to become a colony, all of that stuff is super fun to kind of dig into if you like, if you'd like history,
5: mm-hmm. to kind of oh, see yeah.
6: where are all the different peoples and where do all they go? You know, if you're leaving from, you know, West Africa in the 1600s, 1700s, well, where do you go? You could go a lot of different places. You could end up in Brazil, you could end up here, you could, you know, eventually end up in Canada, you, you know, like we spread out, we're not just in one place.
5: Mm hmm. Man, it sounds like you had a lot of locations to choose from in your research. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was fun. How did you imagine the future of, you know, the 23rd century? How did you come up with that idea?
6: I wanted to kind of hop, you know, in, in, in lifetimes. I wanted there to be kind of a looping back. So I had to kind of, you know, pull it out, tease it out a little bit and go further And um, I love science fiction as much as I love history. To kind of, you know, to think about, you know, how we lived in the past, it's also fun to think about how we might live in the future. How will politics evolve? How will, you know, our exploration evolve? Because we've learned that, or we think we've learned that colonialism isn't necessarily uh, conducive to, um, you know, stable environments. But that's for right now. Maybe we forget all of that and we repeat history and we, you know, get arrogant and try to colonize other planets and what that looks like and, you know, and how will we eat and, and all of that kind of stuff. That's fun to think about. It's another way to like, you know, exercise those creative that creativity and those muscles.
5: Yeah, I really enjoyed that science fiction kind of dabbled in there. It was unexpected and very interesting. So let's go back to present day. In the book, you mentioned the pandemic and some post-quarantine. Tamar, which is the main character, is sick with a terrible cough, and she says it's a gift from the pandemic. Is this present day happening years after the COVID-19 outbreak or within the next year after?
6: Well, yeah, I don't know if it's going to be a recent, you know, a near future or far future, because what we know about the long haulers right now is so little. You know, people are still getting infected and there are some people who are still sick and there are people who are dealing with the after effects of of COVID where they're not necessarily contagious anymore, but they've got these horrible debilitating problems like their lungs are ravaged or they need, you know, transplants or they're on oxygen. And I was thinking about how are we going to acknowledge the pandemic without being set in the pandemic? Because there's so much that we are dealing with right now, and a lot of writers were kind of thinking about, like, do we even talk about it? But it's been so long, and it's been so, you know, all-encompassing. I don't think you can ignore it. You have to acknowledge it in some some way, shape, or form.
5: Right. It's a part of our history, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Like, it's it's a footnote in America's history, well, in the world's history. So how do these timelines interconnect with each of the characters' storylines?
6: I wanted there to be, if you notice that there are some things about each of the characters that are the same, but their personalities, and I think this will happen with all of us, if we were in reincarnated, or if we lived in different eras, even if we lived in different places in America at the same time, you have to not change how you are, but your personality and how you relate to the world shifts a bit. So how men and women relate, how teenagers are treated, will change depending on where and when they are. So they, for Tamar, for example, she has a love of music. Um, So she is a um, musician and a slave in 14th century Africa. And in the present day, she used to be in a school band. In the future, there is a drum machine that triggers bombs. These are all things that she ends up being drawn to with probably no real understanding as to why she's drawn to it, but how that love of music manifests is entirely dependent upon where and when she is.
5: Mm -hmm. Yeah, because each of the timelines that personality stays the same in the fact that she loves music and Fayard is kind of like a hustler, but Mm -hmm. like their family dynamics and friends and the environments change. Why was it important for you to at least keep those two characteristics the same in each timeline for those characters?
6: I didn't want it to be disjointed. So when you, because we do a lot of jumping, though the book is not linear, you know, we go back and forth from different eras at different times. And while, you know, the, the pocket stories, you know, go from the beginning of what, you know, the meet cute till, you know, to the end of their, their time together, that's linear. But where we are in the book can be or where we are with them jumps back and forth. And for you to have some sort of connection to them, they had to have something the same. So they're not gonna talk the same or speak the same to each other because the way that we speak looks, you know, like we don't use jive turkey anymore. You know? <laughs> the slang's because different. That, mm-hmm. Because it's different. We don't mm-hmm. speak to people the same way, even, you know, 30 years, 40 years apart. So if you're talking about hundreds of years apart, the way that you would speak to someone be, would be different. So you have to have something that feels the same for you to understand that this is the, the same person.
5: So I read that you consider yourself a dyed-in-the-wool Southern girl. Yes. <laughs> you live in Atlanta now. And how do you interweave your Southern roots into this novel?
6: I like, you know, this isn't my first novel. It's actually my sixth. This is just the first one that um, was, I was actually, you know, able to get published. And, you know, that's normal of, of, of writers where, you know, everything you write isn't going to get published. But everything I write is going to be set in the South because it's just so so much part of who I am and how people relate to each other and the food that we eat and how we you know, experience the seasons and church culture and food culture. It's such a specific kind of living and I feel that it doesn't get celebrated enough. Sometimes I feel in the larger media, popular media, it can be looked at as backwoods or disrespected, you know, because it's slower or whatever, just not given its due. And so I like to do always, you know, celebrate the people in the place.
5: I definitely appreciated it being a southern girl especially when one of her favorite foods was a chili dog with extra mustard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's so delicious, especially one yeah. from the Varsity.
6: <laughs> yes, there, and you know, and certain things that I think that you know, like, I'm from South Carolina. You know, so in a lot of my books there's always like a Carolina game going on somewhere, and that's a big thing, you know. <laughs> You know, here there would be, you know, like a Georgia Tech game or Georgia Bulldogs game. You cannot ignore those things. If you're going to be talking about the place, that is going to come up at some point. If it's Saturday, it's college football day, which means (laughs) you want to come across somebody in a Bulldogs hat, in a Gamecock hat, trying to find some place to wait to to watch the game.
5: Yeah, yeah. And can you talk about some of the commonalities you have with the main character, Tamar?
6: You know, I think all of my characters have a little bit of me in them, but they evolve on their own as I try to kind of place them in a a certain situation. I think she's a lot more ambitious than I am, you know, got a little bit more wanderlust than I do. She kind of makes choices where she can run away, where she can, you know, expand herself. And I like to be rooted, you know, (laughs) She loves very deeply though. So I guess we have that in common. But other than that, she's her own person. She's a little bit of a rebel.
5: Yeah. And how would you
6: describe Fayard? Fayard is, you know, one of those soft-hearted boys. And I wanted to write a care a Black boy character who loved deeply. I think that you don't see that too often with boys, period, where they're allowed to just be fully in love. Um, But, you know... I've experienced that. And then as a high school librarian, I've seen that. I have seen my 15 year old, 16 year old students (laughs) devastated because their girlfriend moved away. Inconsolable, (laughs) you know? And you don't get to see that, you know? And I wanted him to just really be all in with her. But I also wanted him to be kind of charming and kind of a flirt. And you'll see that he's very, affable. And I wanted that as well to be part of his personality.
5: Although this book is centered on two Black characters, and there are a lot of other Black uh, side characters within the story, how is this novel relatable to all audiences?
6: For one, there's always going to be something that you can relate to. Like, you know, there the Black experience is going to have its unique touch points but any southern girl is going to be able to relate to tamar trying to figure out how to to get around or the things that she's in, in you know interested in while she's in the present day you know any southern girl or any girl in in general will be able to connect with her wanting a boyfriend but not wanting to call him her boyfriend because then she'll be like his girlfriend and do I want to want that label but I really really like him <laughs> you know like that <laughs> that is a universal <laughs> type of relation and the same thing with fair like he doesn't really know what he wants to do with his life just yet and he's kind of trying to figure it out, but he really likes this girl and he really, you know, you know, wants to be bombastic about it. And there's something fun and relatable about that. You know, the fact that they're Black kids is part of it, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, color everything about their every
7: day.
5: Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there are specific things that you wanted to touch upon that's from the Black experience? I, I know that we had talked about the racism thing, but any of the lighthearted stuff that is maybe catered towards...
6: Black audience? I think just the way that they relate to their families, but I also think that's just universal. Like the way that, you know, we have connections in the South, I think are universal. We have a lot more, that's thing that we don't talk about a lot in general. You know, I feel that the politics and stuff separates us, the Black and white, which is also social construct anyway. If y'all were just to say, hey, I'm gonna go see my grandma on Sunday and she's gonna make me some chicken and biscuits after church. If that's all I wrote down on a piece of paper, you would be hard pressed to be able to say, who, you know, who are we talking about? You know what I'm saying? You know, or you know, all of my aunts and my uncles are gonna have a cookout on Saturday and we're gonna watch the game. You know what I mean? Like that's just how we relate here. And what's the specifics about, you know, the the black and white experience make come down to very tiny, tiny things. If we're going to be in the same place, you know, like what church we go to may be different or maybe the type of seasoning that we put on the chicken when we put when we make our beer chicken. But we're still making beer chicken (laughs) on a barrel on a barrel barbecue grill at four o'clock on a Saturday. (laughs) That is the same, you know. Those things don't really, you know, make that much of a difference, you know. So there there are some things that will be unique. Like when I decided on where to go for her flashbacks, that's specific to where we come from. So I'm going back to Mali instead of going back to 13th century Ireland. So the where we go might be different, but the experience of... You know, falling in love with a noble boy, which Fayard is in that era, you know, like he's the son of a traveling a noble in a king's retinue. You know, that's been done before. It just hasn't been done in that place.
5: Right. Ultimately, love transcends time and place for these two characters, Tamar and Fayard. Is this novel your definition on what it means to have a soulmate?
6: Yes, because, and I'm not gonna give away the ending, they are connected. And they find each other in all of their lifetimes. And I feel like if, you know, you believe in soulmates that, you know, that would be the truth. How they find each other, where they're living or, you know, what situations they may be in may be different. And whether or not, you know, it's going to be easy for them to really realize their love that may be different. But the fact that they connect to each other in all of these lifetimes is, you know, an indisputable fact.
2: Atlanta author Shana Miles speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. Miles's debut novel is for all time. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., comedians Joe Pettis and Ariel Kaplan share details on next weekend's West End Comedy Festival. City Lights host and executive producer is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and I invite you to connect with us on social media. You can find us at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta.